Hello, Rachel here with a brief, I guess a public service announcement and errata to explain something about the episode that you are about to hear. And if you listen to all of these episodes where we discuss the play scene by scene, you're going to hear this message multiple times. And I apologize for that to. This important information is that there is a method that my co-hosts and I discuss called Original Practice Shakespeare that we have since learned was not original practice to Shakespeare at all. There is zero evidence to suggest that Shakespeare's actors did not rehearse their plays. There is zero evidence to suggest that they always faced the audience at all times. In fact, we know that to be patently false. So I go into this in more depth in the episode of the podcast under that title about what is original practice and Shakespeare and early modern rehearsal and play production methods. friends is this? This is Illyria, lady. And what should I do in Illyria? My brother, he is in Elysium. Perchance he is not drowned. What think you, sailors? It is perchance that you yourself were saved. Oh, my poor brother. And so perchance may he be. True, madam. And to comfort you with chance, assure yourself after our ship did split, when you and those poor number saved with you hung on our driving boat, I saw your brother. Most provident in peril, bind himself. Courage and hope both teaching him the practice to a strong mast that lived upon the sea, where, like Orion on the dolphin's back, I saw him hold acquaintance with the waves so long as I could see. For saying so, there's gold. Mine own escape unfoldeth to my hope. Whereto thy speech serves for authority, the like of him. Knowest thou this country? Aye, madam, well, for I was bred and born not three hours' travel from this very place. Who governs here? A noble duke in nature as in name. What is the name? Orsino. Orsino? I have heard my father name him. He was a bachelor then. And so is now, or was so very late. For but a month ago I went from hence, and then t'was fresh in murmur, as you know... What great ones do, the less will prattle of, that he did seek the love of fair Olivia. What's she? A virtuous maid, the daughter of a count that died some twelve months since. Then, leaving her in the protection of his son, her brother, who shortly also died, for whose dear love they say she hath abjured the company and sight of men. Oh, that I served that lady and might not be delivered to the world till I had made mine own occasion mellow what my estate is. That were hard to compass. For she will admit no kind of suit. No, not the Duke's. There is a fair behavior in thee, Captain. And though that nature with a beauteous wall doth oft close in pollution yet of thee, I will believe thou hast a mind that suits with this thy fair and outward character. I prithee, 
and I'll pay thee bounteously. Conceal me what I am, and be my aid, for such disguise as haply shall become the form of my intent. I'll serve this duke. Thou shalt present me as a eunuch to him. It may be worth thy pains, for I can sing and speak to him in many sorts of music that will allow me very worth his service. What else may hap to time I will commit? Only shape thou thy silence to my wit. Be you his eunuch, and your mute I'll be. When my tongue blabs, then let mine eyes not see. I thank thee. Lead me on. starts out and Viola is basically mm-hmm. asking where the hell am I right what country friends is this and the captain knows this is Illyria lady he knows why because he grew up there <laughs> and he's also a sea captain so hopefully he knows his way around um, I I think that it's important to note the importance of ship's captains in Elizabeth's time were a bunch of landlocked landlubbers. The odds of us knowing a ship's captain are pretty slim, but in Shakespeare's day, it would have been more like a bus driver. Why, hello, madam. I'm your friendly bus driver. Welcome to Illyria. <laughs> Duke Orsino lives over there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so you would have looked to a captain to know their way around a place. You would also have assumed that they were fairly reliable people, that they were people that could be trusted because they'd been entrusted with a whole ship to go collect cargo and bring it back and fight off pirates and everything else. So a captain is, in a sense, a a fairly high-status occupation, but at the same time, kind of a low-status one, because you are, you know, at the behest of your betters. On the other hand, out at sea, you're basically the king of your ship. And so here's this captain. He's lost his ship. He's lost his command. He's in a precarious position himself. And yet, clearly, Viola has inspired loyalty from him. And so the fact that he is so willing to help her speaks really well of Viola. It implies that she's not a a scattered person. She's not a frivolous person. And again, this is revolutionary to be depicted as a woman with a serious affect, with serious ideas. Viola is repeatedly referred to as someone who is smart, as someone who has brains. And just in these very opening lines where we meet Viola, her character is established as somebody that deserves respect. And again, you know, we are speaking to Elizabeth here, where, you know, this could have been Elizabeth, and yet that would not have diminished her dignity one iota, because women can be dignified and commanding and worthy of respect, even when their clothes are falling off them on a beach. And once do we see 
any suggestion of impropriety from the captain. He clearly respects her body and her person. We are never worried for Viola's safety with the captain. I mean, here's this vulnerable young woman on a beach with a, a man. Her virtue is at stake. But what does he do? He says, oh, you want to dress as your brother? Sure. I'll help you. <laughs> I'll lie for you. I'll pretend I can't even speak if that's what it takes to protect Viola. So Bridget, what is Viola proposing that she do in the scene? How, why is she, first of all, what are her problems and what is she doing to solve those issues? Well, she has washed ashore, fatherless and brotherless, mm -hmm. um, no one to protect her. And she needs to find a way to stay safe until she can hopefully get home, find a way to get home. The one woman apparently in the town who she could have um, taken refuge with is sequestered for seven years. So the only alternative she finds is to dress herself as her brother, whom she thinks has been lost at sea, and to seek employment with the Duke until she can figure out how to get home. If you would read, John, uh, let's see. Yeah, go ahead and read True Madam and to comfort you with chance, blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> it well, this, one, this one's a little different, right? It's, you know, we've got that great ally with the, the humor of Orsino in the first scene mm -hmm. and kind of his banter back and forth. And it's like you said, there's something very different in the, in the back and forth with the captain here. His mm -hmm. willingness to suddenly expound on all of this. Mm -hmm. and, and just really dive deep into the history of the area and uh, at the same time like i think we're half coughing and coming out of the ocean a lot of the times you know mm -hmm. uh, production wise that's always one of the fun things to reconcile right it's like mm -hmm. where does he get this spurt of inner character from in these circumstances but these circumstances can't so overweigh the scene that that would be something they would talk about in lieu of this right because mm -hmm. it's plot machinations are at the forefront obviously pretty quickly here you would think uh, it'd be like ah! <laughs> the scene obviously we're coming from shipwreck we're on the coast this kind of vibe we're getting into a strong exposition moment mm -hmm. how much time do you take before you're speaking do you establish do you you know do you do you linger mm. with the idea of of you know you know uh, i keep some, things moving yeah. Yeah. I just keep things moving right along. The only time I take a breath is for music. And that's that's dictated too in there pretty mm -hmm. much as well. So mm -hmm. you're you're pretty hard adhering to the script. Yeah, I, I that's feel, great to hear. What about that's you, Bridget? Um, well, what we do with original practices, there's not actually a director. There's a facilitator, but there's there's no directing, there's no blocking. So the goal is to keep the play moving as quickly as possible so pretty much as one person is exiting stage right saying the last lines of one one somebody's walking on from stage left speaking the first lines of one two and, and it's it's the actor's choice uh, what they choose to do with it from there on wow. that's yeah, a it's, it's, really really good point because there wouldn't have been any staging there wouldn't mm -hmm. been any scenery for shakespeare mm -hmm. it would have been totally on the actor's themselves mm -hmm. to determine that timing mm -hmm. yep we have we have four chairs on the stage and that's yeah it. yeah yeah that's fascinating mm -hmm. so 
probably the trick is more not letting things like just that timing must be really critical is is what Mm -hmm. my poor little brain is trying to come out with Mm -hmm. for original practice Uh, Mm -hmm. and I I think we should talk a little bit about original practice Uh, suffice Mm -hmm. it to say to my listeners original practice had no rehearsals Mm -hmm. and often worked off of a cue script as Shakespeare's players would have done there was very little memorization theater troops were doing like 35 productions at once and so their whole whole production art very different than what we do today mm-hmm. um, so let's see okay if we'll go back to true madam and to comfort you with chance if you would please john yeah true madam and to comfort you with chance assure yourself after a ship did split when you and those poor numbers saved with you hung on our driving boat, I saw your brother, most provident in peril, bind himself, courage and hope, both teaching him the practice, to a strong mast that lived upon the sea. Where, like Arian on the dolphin's back, I saw him hold acquaintance with the waves so long as I could see. Okay, now this is just breathtaking imagery. So basically, he's saying, I saw your brother holding on to the mast of the ship, riding it like a dolphin, like a badass. (laughs) The classic thing, too. Like, there's a couple Mm -hmm. of instances of it in this scene where it's like, you know, ancient Greek style. You know, it's this amazing thing happened Mm -hmm. right over there. (laughs) Not here, where we're doing the show, but right there is where it happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this imagery of riding on the dolphin's back was really common. Arian was a particular mythical figure, but it was also a common trope for Cupid or Aphrodite, Venus's son, to be riding a dolphin through the waves. And so again, we bring back in this idea of love that Viola's brother is a love god capable of riding the waves on a giant penis <laughs> the dick jokes keep coming people it's it's I, you know it's not it's not your fault i think they're it's fertile ground <laughs> as we're going to see further Constantly. Uh, we go. and I, I think it's actually it's really important to people understanding shakespeare and appreciating well, shakespeare. certainly something that the actors would play Yes. You know, in and, and that time, you know, again, you're going out to a show, it's five hours or something of mm-hmm. just listening to, you know, it was an oral thing for the most part. They went out to go hear a play for the most part. And, this, mm-hmm. you know, you got to mm-hmm. pepper it, you know, back in the day they're, you know, groundlings again to the queen. So they've got to, they've got to get uh, every, you know, 20 minutes or so, you got to throw in a, you know, a, a dick joke or a something. A dick joke you know, or a hundred. We, we need that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also and- for the new people. The fact is that the Elizabethans had a very practical, what we would consider body relationship to sex in that it was a natural human function and no different than eating or sleeping or defecating. Any of that was to be expected out of a human being. And, you know, it it hadn't been too long before that men were wearing giant cod pieces over their over their penises just in case people forgot that there was a penis under there they thought they would remind you that penises exist Uh, not quite so prevalent during elizabeth's time you can understand why but 
people just didn't have any kind of embarrassment about dick jokes. Remember, too, that people lived a lot closer to livestock. And, you know, if you've seen one bull pizzle, you're impressed. And mm -hmm. but you will have seen a lot of them as anybody in Elizabethan times. Our idea that penises are something that we shouldn't talk about, that we shouldn't joke about, is really very, very modern. And uh, we can get into this another time. Except for when they're burning you. Right. 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 Yeah. Romeo and Juliet is basically one dick joke after another. Oh, and it's, it's the, it, the whole canon is just filled. Absolutely the fact that they that they do, you know, Romeo and Juliet in junior high is a never ending source of amusement to <laughs> oh, me. But you are not lying. Well, and, you know, I I've always got to have someone on hand whenever I'm going into a production on a show that is I'm sort of a prude barbarian. Mm -hmm. I'm like a, a, you know, barbaric sort that was raised, you know, sort of, you know, very specific you know, sort mm -hmm. of prudish grandparents and, and this kind of thing. So I always need a little nudge on the, uh, you know, uh, blue areas, you know, of the script and stuff. My, I don't intentionally go there, um, I, but once they, I've seen them, mm -hmm. I, you know what I mean? It's, I'm, I'm right there with you, but, you know, I always get, you know, I'm one of these guys that every single time I've hit the show, I had to talk myself out of coming uh, the Blue Lagoon. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know just just turtles swimming and frolicking with the dolphins and the you know and we're swinging on the trees and uh -huh, you know uh -huh. so every time it sounds you know, lovely frankly i want to see it now <laughs> how about you bridget do you find that the original practice actors are they comfortable with kind of exploring those bodier aspects or does it just really depend based on the actor yeah i would say most of us are comfortable with it the thing we do try to keep in mind is that um our audience skews very family mm -hmm. oriented you know mm -hmm. when you're doing free shakespeare outside in august you're gonna get a lot mm -hmm. of kids so yeah. it's there's definitely a needle to thread where you want to mm -hmm honor the intention of the text which is really what original practices is all about but you also or i certainly don't want to then spend the next month fielding irate phone calls <laughs> no, no. from my neighbors no. you have to know your audience yeah there was no absolutely. yelp in shakespeare's day no <laughs> right they just yeah. cut your head off they just right? yeah there cut was... off your ears or your hand yeah. or whatever yeah. yeah yeah so it's definitely a a, a needle to thread can I, can I add on to that? Sure. Just that I, I think that you, you're, when you ask that about actors, actors for me have always been the, some of the richest sorts of, you know, how to navigate these moments. They're dying mm -hmm. for this, you know, these mm -hmm. kinds of moments in here, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of, I, it's, it's when you've got a really good physically grounded and, and physically alert actor, I mean, mm -hmm. these kinds of, of uh, you know, the, some of the more, the dick jokes, all, you know, all of this, it, that's where it, it really comes to life. You know, if, if I try to piece that, you know, you do Lysistrata and you're starting to have incredibly intense, you know, discussions about, okay, now when we're talking about phalluses here, you know, an army of phalluses, it mm -hmm. all becomes very aesthetic and, and weird. But if you get a couple of good clowns in there, they'll take care of it for you. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> yep. That's our job, right? That's yeah. our job. Yeah. Okay. So from then we go on to captain's explaining that he was bred and born not three hours travel from this very place so his credibility becomes even higher 
And then he's talking about Orsino, that he's probably a safe bet. He seems as honorable as anybody else on the island, and she'll have an easier time of getting into his court than Olivia's. And then Viola pays him with some gold. People are getting paid in this play. And I think it's important for us to realize that gold during the Elizabethan time, if you liked something that somebody said, you would give them a little gold. If they were lower than you in status. So this establishes a couple of things for us. One is that the captain said something very pleasing to Viola. The other is that she is still his boss. She is paying him. And although it's clear that he's doing this out of duty and love, but also she's his employer at this point. Her father's dead. Her brother's dead. She has somebody on the island that answers to her. And he has somebody that might help her, uh, sorry, that might help him later if he wants another ship. Hmm. So uh, he gets a little bit of gold for saying something that pleases her. And then she says, I prithee and I'll pay thee bounteously. Out of what? <laughs> what is she going to pay? <laughs> she has high hopes, man. <laughs> Clearly, she's wealthy. So by the time she can get home or get to her normal estate, she will be able to to pay him what she feels like he is owed. And in return, he says, be you his eunuch and your mute, I'll be. Now, she is planning on posing as a eunuch. And not everybody knows what a eunuch is. And so a eunuch is somebody who... Reverse of a dick joke. Yeah, the, <laughs> who Dick joke with no punchline. Who was assigned a masculine identity at birth, and who had some portion of their anatomy removed in order to be either less threatening as a guard for women, or in order to preserve a singing voice. And again, brings us back to a more Islamic culture in the Ottoman Empire where uh, eunuchs would be treated very well, often became advisors. It was kind of thought that if you were willing to make that sacrifice for your ruler, that you were probably a good, you know, about as loyal a person as you could get to protect your family, because that's an incredible length to go. Now, you know, young boys who were made eunuchs for the Catholic Church in order to, you know, preserve their singing voice, that's a whole other issue, but was still happening, certainly during Elizabethan's time. Um, and, you know, it, obviously, it's appalling, and we're not going to go into the ins and outs of it, because it's, it's depressing and sad. Uh, all that said, it does give Viola a cover for her high voice. Anything anything else either of you want to add about this particular scene? Well, there's a, just that, you know, to underscore your bit, we get, we get a call back to up at the beginning of that page there, just with the Elizabethan alliance mm -hmm. 
and in terms of you know actually Elizabeth, with they say that she hath abjured the company and sight of men. Viola finishing the line, "Oh, that I served that lady," mm-hmm. right there. You know, just immediately feels that kinship immediately. But the captain again coming in, uh, that were hard to compass. Finishing her line again, just to immediately shut this down. Mm-hmm. Um, and following that that line from her about there is a fair behavior in the captain. That line has always given me pause. You know, what is she seeing there? It's always a great thing to answer in these moments. You know, it's obviously all of these things that we're talking about right then, but this scene also does serve as a romantic launch into some of the, it depends on what you do with the captain, I guess, but there, that connection moment, you never, I don't know, I've never uh, really seen it staged full, that there's a, a real connection between the two of them, like a serious romantic connection and all, but there's quite often an underpinning of there's something there's a little something you know we get the the shot of the cover of the storybook or whatever just a little bit you know Mm -hmm. um and it has to do obviously with everything that he's doing for her and talking fairly and and kindly and uh but that there's also um something there with the two of well i think that's a good point and when we think about the reputation that queen elizabeth had she had a few favorites that were sea captains were explorers who she was rumored to be romantically linked with. So I think that's a, I think that's an astute observation. Um, I think that the fact that Viola is paying the captain definitely implies that they're not of the same rank. Yeah. hundred percent. And yet, that would have been true of Elizabeth and her paramours. They clearly weren't of the same rank either. And yet she felt that she could rely on them, that they were loyal to her. Yeah, I think it's kind of touching that there's this sort of affection between Viola and the captain that's clearly shared and non-threatening at the same time. Twelfth Night is all about love. All different kinds of love. (laughs) And I think we ignore the interrelationships between any of these characters at our peril. Excellently said. Mm -hmm. Without further ado, here comes Act One, Scene Three, Twelfth Night or What You Will. And here we are in Olivia's home. I think we're outside in like a farmyard or something, I think is where I I ended up setting it because the sound Mm. effects were fun. (laughs) 